History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 64, From Medieval to the Renaissance. Hi everyone and welcome back. The between-season break turned out to be somewhat longer than I'd planned, but I'm back, refreshed I think, and ready to tackle the next phase of the story of the theatre. I hope you enjoyed the additional episodes on Oscar Wilde and his verse tragedy Salome and on the diary of Philip Henslow. And just as a reminder that if you'd like to see the production of Salome that I discussed, then you could just go to the Lazarus Theatre website where you can find details of the online streaming of the show, which will be available until the 5th of December 2021. I certainly recommend it as a bold reimagining of the play. And those additional episodes I mentioned featuring the details from Henslow have already started to appear on the Patreon site, so please go there to have a quick look at those. I've put a link in the show notes to the Patreon site and to Lazarus Theatre online. So now we can leave the medieval period behind us, and I hope you do so with an appreciation of what was achieved then, despite all the constraints on artistic expression that undoubtedly existed. Although we no longer refer to the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, I think there is still a tendency to see it as a less interesting period in history than many others. I think what I learned in all the research for Season 3 is that just because things developed and changed more slowly than they did later in history doesn't mean that interesting things didn't happen. The lack of detailed information is a problem, but even with what we have, we can, I think, see that mankind has always been endlessly creative and inventive and artistic expression will out, whatever the constraints. So I found digging into the medieval period a very interesting exercise. And you're still here, so I guess you did too. Now it's time to take a look at the theatre in the Renaissance. This is a period where my focus will be very much on continental Europe rather than England, because this is where most of the developments in theatre happened during that period. But before we get to that detail, we need to understand how we get from the medieval to the Renaissance. The classical definition of the Renaissance period is that it was a revival of European art and literature under the influence of classical models in the 14th and 15th centuries. So far so good. But, as we shall soon see, those dates stretch a good deal further back than that, so the beginnings of the Renaissance are very much entwined with the end of the medieval. With the distance of historical perspective, we can see that the Renaissance genuinely was a huge cultural revival and a period of intense creativity, and that it was such a broadly based movement that I can't hope to cover it in any sort of detail here. So this will be very much just an overview, where developments were relevant to our area of interest. But I will reference many of the creative aspects of the Renaissance as a reminder that there was a lot going on in all the artistic realms throughout the period. In this case, from medieval to Renaissance, we don't have a long period of unrecorded theatre between periods of history, as we did between the ancient Greeks and the Roman, or between the Roman and the medieval. I touched on some of this in the last episodes of Season 3, as examples of what is still considered medieval theatre stretched into the Tudor period in England. But even in what we can see as a relatively short transition period, there were events and developments that were key to that transition, as the world moved from one period to another. The apogee of medieval drama was in the 14th century, when the cycle or mystery play dominated and there's a sense of decline once religious and other influences brought the morality play to the fore. 
Even the interlude was not a real revival in theatre, as it was aimed at the wealthy as a banquet entertainment, and as such never had the popular reach of the cycle play. I can't say whether people at the time were aware that they were at the end of a movement and that great change was coming, but I suspect not. Perhaps actors hoped for better times and longed for some freedoms as they trudged around Europe, stopping wherever they could to find an audience or to where their masters directed them. But even by then, in distant parts of the continent, there was change. If there's one specific date that can be used to mark the start of the Renaissance, then it is the 29th of May, 1453, the day Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks. The fall of the Byzantine Empire had been a long time coming and a slow, drawn-out process. An empire that traced its beginnings to the origins of the Roman Empire through its division into East and West in 285 CE, which had seen the fall of the West and had been the haven of a Roman culture which then developed into its own Eastern style for centuries, had become a shadow of its former self, with the land under its control shrinking to the advance of the Ottomans from the East. The fall of the city and the empire was a shattering blow for the Christian states of Europe. Byzantium and the Western European states never really understood or trusted each other, and their respective churches were, more often than not, in a state of simmering antagonism, if not outright conflict. But they were both Christian, and now the existential threat from the East was very real and felt throughout Europe. At its height, and much later in the story, that threat would see the Ottomans knocking at the gates of Vienna. So it's no surprise that the impending fall of the city and its final overrunning led to an exodus of refugees, amongst them clergy, monks, artists, scientists and many others. Those with influence and ambition came to the capital and major cities of Europe, bringing with them ancient texts and knowledge that would work its way into European thinking over the next decades. We often refer to classical Greek and Roman as being lost after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and no doubt much was. But some of this ancient knowledge and ideas was preserved in the monasteries and libraries of the Byzantine Empire, but was inaccessible to all but the most scholarly and religious people. A monk could read Aristotle and Seneca, but transmitting and promoting it had become an impossibility under the rules of the dominant church that wanted to focus only on orthodox religious teachings be that the Western Latin orthodoxy or that of the Eastern Church. Once more, texts became available in Western Europe, and at a time when the domination of the Latin Church was under attack from many sides. The time for a wider acceptance of different views of the world was coming. And there were so many changes. Once Copernicus had calculated and proved the position of the movement of the Earth around the Sun, man's position in God's creation could be questioned. Adventurers like Christopher Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan expanded the understanding of the world and presented the potential of untold riches and dominions to the rulers of Europe. Machiavelli presented the Christian leader with the idea that he could be justified in being cynical and ruthless in the quest for power. In the artistic world and after Giotto, representation of the world was no longer rendered flat and dull, but in natural colours and with realistic perspective. The impression is that in daily life people took off their medieval cowls and robes and walked into a dazzling fresh Italian light, rejuvenated. Such a dramatic change is of course fanciful, but for some that was pretty much the case and it came quickly, while for others there was a process of a century or more for the influences of that change to come about. 
A major factor in the acceleration for change in the period was undoubtedly the invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg in 1439. Even this was a reinvention. In fact, the first known printed books were produced in Korea some 200 years earlier, but it was from Gutenberg's invention that printing technology quickly took off. Italian printers were soon producing works for the Italian and French market, and presses were established by William Caxton in London in 1476 and by others in Paris in 1479. For the first time, books could be produced reliably without the lengthy and expensive process of copying by hand, and although still the dominion of the wealthy for a long time to come, the printed word in all its forms eventually became available not just to the scholarly, religious and super-rich echelons of the society, but for all who could read. And that change in itself came about because the world was becoming much more connected. Improvements in navigation and naval technology meant that more knowledge and ideas passed between the European centres of culture more often and more quickly than had ever done before. It's not insignificant, for example, that Caxton was a merchant, making regular trips to the European continent and saw the printing press in Cologne, Germany, and recognised its commercial possibilities. Merchants flourished in the period and were often the importers and exporters not only of goods but books, works of art and perhaps most significantly, ideas. Stubborn resistance to change came from the church and other institutions who could see their access to wealth and power being challenged. Some Gothic sensibilities were retained for a long time, and traditions maintained, but change did come, and it's probably most truthful to see the Renaissance as a slow spread that started in Italy and then made its way across Europe, through France and the German states, eventually arriving in England, where it more or less coincided with the Reformation period. In each country, indeed sometimes in each state, these changes met different traditions, acceptances and barriers, and were changed by the local outlook. But in general, we can say that the period became marked by a new confidence in individualism and individual expression, and this was true in all areas touched by the Renaissance. Another trait that marked out the Renaissance was inventiveness and a forward-looking attitude from its main exponents. Artists experimented with new materials, most notably oil paints, and looked at composition in ways not thought of before. Ideas that broke with traditions even more strongly were explored in medicine and science, geography and astronomy. This was iconoclastic stuff, some of which shook the foundations of medieval beliefs and cost their advocates dearly. We can just touch briefly on it here, but developments in the technology of warfare and particularly the importation of gunpowder from China, and then the ability to manufacture it locally, changed the nature of armaments and defensive architecture throughout Europe. Yet somehow, theatre bucked this trend, and the initial impulse was to look backwards rather than forwards. The rediscovering of Greek and Roman theatre and writings on the theory of theatre by the likes of Aristotle and Cicero led to the Greek and Roman forms being idealised in the 15th century. The way forward in theatre was seen to be best achieved by emulating these forms and applying the rules espoused by the ancient theorists with vigour. As we saw at the end of the medieval period, there had already been a shift away from entirely liturgical drama, with the introduction of the interlude and its almost entirely secular outlook and the relative lack of popular support for the morality play. I'm generalising horribly, but I hope you get the picture. 
the influence of the church over the popular drama of the day was already at its lowest, something that had happened slowly since the control of many aspects of the cycle plays were handed to the guilds and municipal authorities, so there was some fertile ground for experimentation through revival of classic period theatre. The church retained its historic ambivalent if not antithetical view towards theatre. The presentation of plays written in pre-Christian times, particularly those from the Roman period, which were more prominent because they were in Latin rather than Greek, so more easily accessible to the educated, was a problem for the church, which struggled to reconcile the sensibilities expressed by the characters in the plays. In some cases, the church even took exception to religious plays. The history of the confraternity of the Passion is a good example. This was a group of amateur actors drawn from the local merchants and craft guilds in Paris. In 1402, the French king Charles VI gave them permission to produce cycle plays in the city. Their performances were highly regarded, and their right to perform was renewed in 1518. This renewal gave the association an effective monopoly on all acting within the city. However, soon after this, the church began to object to aspects of the performances, particularly the liberties that were supposedly being taken with the religious subjects, and they attempted consistently to have the plays curtailed. The association was also accused of adding apocryphal material and introducing light-hearted farce and pantomime on non-religious subjects. Another charge was that they had extended the playing season to more than six months of the year and were proving a significant distraction to the population of the city and keeping them from their business. That suggests that this was still a very popular form of entertainment, but the protests were successful and in 1548 the association was forced to move location from their prime position to the second arrondissement of the city. They were still optimistic enough to build a new theatre, the Hotel de Bourgogne, as their home, but soon after they were forbidden from performing religious plays, and the association was disbanded, and the new theatre was leased to travelling companies. There is a tenuous link from there to today. Those travelling companies were replaced by a permanent resident troupe that remained in the theatre until the 1670s, when it left to merge with other companies that in turn became the still-existing Comédie Française. The building itself survived until it was demolished in 1783. But back to the Renaissance. In Italy, and then in other regions, the nobility found that they now had some freedom to support secular theatre, and their taste soon turned to classical models, further advancing the demise of the religious play. In England, the Reformation, mixed with a large dash of political expediency, had a similar effect. The classics then worked their way into the education systems as a tool for learning Latin. You will remember that Terence was particularly favoured because his Latin was thought to be more straightforward than that of his predecessors. As generations passed and older Catholic materials were abandoned, the classics came to form the foundations of a good education and became the starting point for the generation of playwrights that was to dominate the Elizabethan stage in England. It was only in Spain that religious drama retained its influence, surviving into the latter part of the 18th century, alongside other secular forms that would become known as the Spanish Golden Age. With new possibilities for the theatre came a realisation that the medieval stage was no longer fit for purpose, and new ideas in stage design were developed. These ideas had a lasting effect in the history of theatre, more so than the plays and playwrights of the period. But again, the initial impetus was backward-looking. 
It was the work of the Roman period architect Vitruvius that was the initial inspiration. Marcus Vitruvius Pollio was born about 80 BCE and died sometime after 15 CE. He was a civil engineer, architect and author. The handbook he wrote for Roman architects, simply called On Architecture, is the work that inspired much of the building work undertaken in the Renaissance, including theatre buildings. It was discovered in the library at the Abbey of St. Gall, Switzerland, by a Florentine humanist, Poggio Bracciolini, who published it as part of a work on architecture in 1450. It was then published in Latin in 1486, in Italian in 1521, in French in 1547 and in English in 1624. Although we now know that other original manuscripts also survived the medieval period in other locations, it is a good example of how ancient texts were rediscovered after being lost and then transmitted throughout Europe during this period. I've only mentioned Vitruvius very briefly before on the podcast, way back in episode 27, about the Roman temporary theatres, which with hindsight seems like quite an oversight, so I'll take a moment here to dive back into the late Roman Republic and say something about the architect and his work that was to have such a significant influence on some 1400 years after his death. The details of the life of Vitruvius are scant. There's no contemporary or near-contemporary biography that survives. But it can be inferred from his writings that he was active from the time of Julius Caesar through to the rise and early rule of Augustus and probably served as an army engineer. On Architecture brings together ideas from theoretical works by early Greek architects with his own personal experience. It covers many aspects of architecture, including city planning, material selection, building techniques, methods of decoration and the construction of public buildings, including temples, baths, and theatres. He originated the idea that all buildings should have three key attributes strength, utility, and beauty. He was a great exponent of Hellenistic design, and some of his commentary on contemporary Roman architecture is far from flattering. However, his vision did not reflect the needs of the expanding global Roman Empire, and his work was superseded due to the requirements of ever larger and grander buildings. But his ideas were never completely left behind. Pliny used on architecture extensively for his books on construction and wall paintings in his own work, The Natural History, albeit unacknowledged. Vitruvius devoted his fifth book of the work, which was published between 27 and 23 BCE, specifically to theatre design and construction, when he suggests that the most important factors to take into consideration are the orientation of the building and the location being healthy. His exact meanings are often obscure and have been much discussed and at times misinterpreted, but most of all we should recognise that he was a practical architect, and many of his ideas are suggestions that he would have fully expected to be adapted, depending on the exact size and location of the building in question. Vitruvius looks closely at the design for Greek and Roman open-air theatres and describes them in terms of their geometry, thereby highlighting important differences which he ascribes to the difference of their intended uses essentially seeing the Greek theatre as a meeting place and the Roman theatre as a place of entertainment. His work doesn't touch on Roman covered theatres, most likely because they were not much used at the time he was writing. The first covered Roman theatre dated with any accuracy is thought to be the Odeon at Pompeii from about 50 BCE. 
Acoustics are an important concern. In fact, for Vitruvius, in the theatre, it's more important to hear than to see. So he describes how the voice moves through the theatre and can be supported by its design in much more detail than he does for sightlines. Here, he gives some advice on improving poor acoustics, with the much quoted and possibly misunderstood idea that bronze urns could be placed in strategic places to improve resonance within the theatre. Vitruvius's wish to be remembered by posterity had to wait until the Renaissance, but from there his ideas were carried into the principles of classical Baroque and neoclassical architecture, and he remains our best source for details of classical architecture itself. I'll come back to the development of theatre buildings through the Italian Renaissance, but for now, what are the other aspects of theatre? When we think of the Renaissance, we don't immediately think of theatre. No, we think of great art and artists, statues and sculptors, great buildings decorated with frescoes and imposing paintings. We can think of innumerable artists or musicians who took music to new heights using the latest musical innovations, but plays and playwrights don't spring to mind. When was the last time you saw a revival of a play from the late 15th or early 16th century? There's a good chance that the answer to that question is never. There doesn't seem to be a single playwright that we could place next to Raphael or Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci in the world of art, or next to Dante, Petrarch or Boccaccio in literature. Not even one playwright strides the period, as we now see Shakespeare doing by the end of the later century. The poetic art of playwriting needed, or so it seems, a long period of gestation after the initial impetus of the Renaissance. Advances were made in staging, acting and theatre architecture, but not so much in the writing of plays. But this doesn't mean that there was no activity, and over the coming episodes I'll be looking at what was presented in the theatres and how it was received by the contemporary audience. Two very early plays from Italy survive, so early in fact that we might consider them medieval, but for their subject matter and form. Their author was Albertino Musato, a statesman, poet and historian working in Padua at the beginning of the 14th century. He was a champion for the revival of literary Latin, and part of his literary output to that end were two plays. A Keranis was written about 1315, and is a secular tragedy in Latin, written in the style of Seneca. As such, it's generally recognised as the first Renaissance drama, and the first post-ancient tragedy. Following the Senecan mould of tracing the fall of a powerful leader, the play concerns the demise of Enzolino III de Romano, a feudal lord and ruler of Verona, Padua and Venice during the 1240s and 1250s, who was known for his cruelty and tyrannical rule. The five-act play profiles Enzolino as boastful and cruel, and in the words of his mother in the play, the son of a demon. This is revealed in the first act of the play, and is a fact that seems to please Enzolino and his brother. The chorus of the citizens of Padua, who are very much the moral voice of the play, express their fears for the future as Enzolino prays to his father. The second act is concerned with accounts of how Enzolino had conquered Verona and Padua in the space of a few days, causing further concern for the chorus. In Act 3, troops from Venice and the Papal lands retake Padua, which leads to Enzolino's death in Act 4 and the death of his whole family in Act 5. Although written with clear influence from Seneca, being in Latin verse and in five acts, the play doesn't follow the other classical rules. The action takes place over 24 years and in multiple locations. 
There are also many Christian references and invocations, but most scholars don't see this as making the play a Christian drama, but rather reflecting a time when the assumption of and calling for the intervention of God was an everyday occurrence. In fact, the play was written as a political piece, with the intention of sending a message to the citizens of Padua that the current ruler of Verona, Cangrande della Scala, had plans to threaten their city. In essence, it's a warning of the threat of power-hungry tyrants. Musato had been imprisoned at the time by Cangrande, so his vitriol was also personal. The message in the words of a messenger in the play is heartfelt. O Verona, always the ancient scourge of this march, dwelling place of enemies and roads to war, seat of tyranny. The play was a huge popular success and made a significant contribution to the revival of writings in the classical style. Musato was lauded as a Paduan patriot, and a law was passed stating that the play was to be read every Christmas to reinforce Paduan resolve and pride. Musato went on to be named Poet Laureate by the Bishop of Padua. His other known play, Achilles, concerns the Greek hero, a subject also covered by Antonio Lashkai in 1390. For those who see Musato as a Christian playwright, Lashkai's play wins the claim to be the first Renaissance tragedy. The first Renaissance comedy is generally acknowledged to be by Pierre Paolo Verreggio, and also dates from about 1390. He's better known for his treatise on education called The Moral Code, which was one of the most influential works on education before Erasmus, and was a much-studied text throughout the 16th century. His comedy, which is a cautionary tale about a student of the liberal arts and the dangers of his wild lifestyle, is humanist in nature, written in Latin, and has elements of both Roman and contemporary comedy. These three early Renaissance playwrights show how knowledge of at least some elements of classical works was never completely lost, and just how early the beginning of the Renaissance was on the Italian peninsula. The Renaissance also saw the birth of art forms related to theatre. Although I'm not going to make any attempt to cover the history of opera on this podcast, I think, as a major theatrical form, I should mention it here, because it has its identifiable origins in the Renaissance. The term opera to designate a theatrical storytelling mode that uses a narrative sung to music wasn't first adopted until the 1630s, but as a form it existed as a courtly entertainment, with a tale that stretches back to the folk musical of the medieval period. You might remember that I mentioned the polyphonic music that was the troubadour's form of storytelling in episode 60 when discussing the medieval secular theatre with particular reference to Adam de la Hale and it is from these and the similar madrigal form that opera developed as a distinct form in the early Renaissance. In the Italian states, the form came to bring together music and singing into a narrative story where the setting and dramatic use of melody combined to heighten the emotional content of the lyrics. As a courtly entertainment, this was not unrelated to the French ballet de corps and the English masque, which developed in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, but was really quite a long way from the classical opera form, which began with Daphne, composed in 1598 by Jacopo Perry, and a group of humanists in Florence. From there to Monteverdi, and on to the elite art of the subsequent centuries. Classical ballet as a distinct art form follows a similar trajectory, with its origins in the late medieval folk dance becoming formalised as a courtly entertainment. Dancers were typically amateur and developed dances from social court dances. These were taken by Catherine de' Medici to France, where dancers' storytelling was developed further. 
Again, this is not an area of performance that I will be discussing, but I wanted to point out that the developments that would become opera and ballet were happening as early in the Renaissance period as the movements in art and sculpture and in the study of the arts. Against all of this, the development of theatre is just another aspect and not a particularly prominent one when we look back over the whole sweep of the movement. So we've come from the fall of a great empire to the blossoming of art, science and human culture generally in a way that has not been seen since Roman times and arguably never before in human history. Even before the last days of Byzantium, changes had started to happen and advances were being made but the movement of people and ideas accelerated in the mid-15th century and a very different world was being formed. I think it's fair to say that theatre in the Renaissance got off to a slow start, but found some roots in the Greek and Roman classical period plays that led it down a certain path. Although theatrical activity does not stand out against the other arts, there were changes that happened quite early on in the period, and which would lead to significant changes. To get an understanding of the impact of theatre as part of the Renaissance, we'll need to get stuck into a lot of detail, and we'll meet some very interesting characters along the way. Next time we stay in Italy, to see how theatre of the Renaissance developed and began to find its way in a rapidly changing world. Following the plays of Musato, with their reliance on later Senecan tragedy, we find another backwards look, but this time not to Seneca, but all the way back to the father of the theory of theatre. Yes, the Italians turned to Aristotle to find a way to new drama. So there we are, off and running on the European Renaissance Theatre. If you access the podcast via the website, you'll find a new seasons category on the main menu, and of course, the latest episodes always appear on the landing page. If you'd like more theatre history content, please find the podcast on Facebook and on Twitter, and there is plenty of extra content on Patreon for a small monthly fee. All of the links are in the show notes. Most of all, thanks for your continued support listening to each episode. Please spread the word amongst your friends and anyone you think might be interested. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.